0: As I mentioned last week, I wanted to uh, go into a little bit more depth with the five spiritual faculties that I began with last Tuesday, and remembering it's, it's really our great good fortune that we're at a time where this these articulations, mostly from the Buddha, but of course other wise beings along the way have articulated the path in a way that's useful for us. And this map of the five spiritual faculties, it's specifically mapping out that territory between the arising of faith. We recognize, like what gets us to the forest refuge, a place like this, we recognize there's that movement oh, there's something I can do with my mind, with my life. And it, it maps out that distance between or that space between that faith and the experience of insight, the deepening of wisdom. How does one, when recognizing the faith, how does one plant the seeds that culminate in the deepening of insight and the liberating insight how does that happen and I shared this section of a discourse last week where the Buddha talks about these five strings inclining to Nibbana to release to unbinding in the same way that the river The Ganges River flows, slopes, inclines to the ocean. And uh, part of what we're doing with these maps, the very nature of the maps, because they arise out of a mind that has experienced this awakening process directly, then their description is going to paint this picture of a natural process, not some difficult journey that you and I have to navigate. You know, we love these hero journeys. You know, so many of our books and stories and movies. And it's not that it doesn't take a lot of courage or a lot of effort a lot of patience but there's something naturalistic about it in one of the uh, suttas the Buddha gives three similes to describe the path some of you have heard me maybe say because I repeat this a lot I'm just going to summarize it very quickly. But the first simile is of a hen, mother hen. And this particular mother hen really wants the eggs that they've laid to hatch, but doesn't really do what needs to be done, right? Doesn't sit on the eggs, doesn't incubate them, but they really want the eggs to hatch. And do the eggs hatch? No. Why? Because the causes weren't there, the supporting causes for the hatching. And then the Buddha gives another example of a mother hen who's sort of indifferent about whether the eggs hatch or not, but for whatever reason, maybe just habit, they do sit on the eggs appropriately and incubate them. And so the question is, of course, will those eggs hatch? And the answer is, yeah, they're going to probably hatch. Because the supporting causes were there. And I'll skip over the second simile, but the third one is of a boat. So the Buddha's just, that first simile, he's really saying that if you follow the instructions, (laughs) you know, you have to hear them, the instructions, and then we have to understand them. We have to, you know, because you know how it is the language of the suttas. Comes out of a particular time and place and and you know some of the sutta's discourses I'll share tonight might sound a little bit almost militaristic, you know, just in terms of how it's described a person relates to their mind, so somehow we have to hear that and not be so turned off that we just decide there's nothing there for me, and we're gonna chew on it. What possible, what could these teachings, this information that I picked up, what could it be pointing to that would be of some use for me, that I can actually use in a way that illuminates, helps me see and feel what I'm not seeing clearly, feeling deeply. That's the point, right? To see what we haven't seen, to feel what we haven't felt, to open to what we haven't opened to yet. And uh, so the third simile is uh, of a boat that's taken up on shore during the time of bad weather for maybe some season where people who fish don't fish. And in that time of just sitting out in the sun and the rain and the humidity and the wind, the sails slowly rot away. That's a very earthy image for the Buddha to choose to use for a practice. Something is wearing out. Something is rotting away. And there's... Why? Because of that something that's extra, like attachment or clinging, self-centered grasping, is being exposed to the elements, to the way it is. And what happens then is that tendency to grasp, to act out self-centered grasping, gets worn away, rots away. So it's really important, you know, when we talk about the five spiritual faculties of faith, confidence, wise effort, persistence, mindfulness, awareness, sati, the stability of awareness, samadhi, and wisdom. So these five controlling factors or strengths that incline, when developed, incline the heart to release, to unbinding. And the Buddha says that the way we work with all five, we work with faith, we work with effort, we work with awareness and the stability of awareness and wisdom is dependent on seclusion, dependent on dispassion, dependent on cessation, resulting in letting go. So it gives us a lot of a felt sense of how to work or relate to faith, to confidence. And it's it's useful in this regard, you know, I mentioned last week that the five faculties, they're named after uh, Indra. One of the gods in the sort of yogic Hindu pantheon. And kind of the, uh, I mentioned like Zeus, sort of in charge of the other gods in a way. And so the idea is that we want these five qualities of the mind, of the heart, to dominate the mind, (laughs) to get established And they have a way of working together. And it's just interesting as we reflect on them actually as they're appearing in our heart and mind to really start to see how they interrelate. You know, we talk about five, but it's all about relationship, how they're relating and supporting and, and in a way building a coherence you know, And then when they're developed, they're called the five powers. I don't know if people, if I mentioned that last week, for those who were here. And that, when they're developed into the five powers, then that mind, that heart, is going to incline to unbinding, to nibbana. Just like the hen that sits on the eggs, those eggs are going to hatch. And um, it's just really interesting when we hear this, it will probably reveal for all of us our way that we relate to ideas of competence and mastery. Because we have our own personal history you know, of wanting to be competent, for example, or wanting to master something. And uh, maybe some of you have been successful and mostly what you try to master try to get competent at, you were able to. And so you have a lot of that. uh, You like uh, these sort of adventures of mastery. Maybe I'll master the Spanish language, or maybe I'll learn how to kayak, or I'll, you know. And you have that kind of confidence that if I apply the mind, if I stick with it, if I learn from my mistakes... I'm not embarrassed to defer to those who know more than me and really listen, you know, humble myself and ask for advice, I can do this. And, and some of us, maybe all of us to some degree, <clears throat> have had some not so healthy or wholesome relationships to the idea of mastery where we felt like we were trying hard but we didn't succeed. And we are maybe humiliated or embarrassed by not being able to master something. I have lots of those examples in my life. You know, and it's just so easy to see the different ways the mind rationalizes the lack of success. Not being successful, not being able to master something. To some degree, most of us have that relationship around samadhi, don't we? you know like i've been at this so long and we hear stories of people abiding in radiant bliss for hours at a time i remember hearing lee brazington some of you know he's a teacher and he mentioned he was in thailand and there's like a county fair their equivalent of a county fair and the local some of the local Monasteries, Buddhist monasteries, would send their best meditator, you know, it's like a weekend fair or something like that. They'd set, send their best meditator, you know, have a little platform, and the person would go into jhana, you know, at the beginning of the county fair, you know, and not move until the end, you know, two, three days later or something like that. So there's this sort of uh, Set up because uh, we sort of know that you know these um, powers like to be to have the power of faith or to have the power of wise effort to be able to apply my mind to stick with it to know how to plant seeds. I mentioned that last week to keep planting positive seeds with confidence that they will bear fruit something will come from it and to be aware to recognize awareness to stabilize present moment awareness to deepen insight and we can really uh, you know we all have such an interesting relationship our minds with doubt I mean one way or another, we're we're really in relationship with doubt. Can I do this? Am I doing it right? Did I take the wrong turn somewhere? Do I really know what I'm doing? Does the teacher really know (laughs) what he's doing? Or (laughs) were the Buddha's teachings appropriated at a particular time and place, but somehow got lost in translation through all the centuries, (coughs) or I really totally believe in the teachings, but I just don't seem to have the capacity. My mind's too distractible, or my body hurts too much, or I just have too many other interests, or the world is such a mess, this isn't the time and place for this inner work. So let's look at these five, spend a few minutes with each. And I'll <clears throat> mention with each of the five, Sayada Utejaniya, this wonderful Burmese teacher, Buddhist monk, has a line for each of the five. I'll just mention that right now so you can hear them and then I'll probably repeat it. So with faith, he says, that which wants to practice is sadha or confidence or faith that which wants to practice, right? So when you feel that desire, I mean, like I said, that's what got us to sign up to come to the forest refuge, right? We wanted to practice. And that idea might have been relatively superficial or maybe not, but it was some expression of faith, of wanting to continue our practice, wanting to deepen our practice. Same thing when you get up in the morning and you don't go back to bed, you know, oh, yeah. As hard as it might be, I really want to do this. Or well, you come back into the hall, or come back onto your seat in your room, or to go to the next walking. And for uh, effort, he says that, that which is practicing is virya, or wise effort. And with mindfulness, he says that which happens. Is sati, awareness. And then with uh, samadhi, he says that which is able to practice is samadhi. And you can probably guess the wisdom. That which knows how to practice skillfully is panya, wisdom. So faith again is that which wants to practice, effort is that which is practicing. So awareness, sati, this is, it's important, that, um, see, where is it here, that which happens is sati, because we don't do awareness, right, the doing part is really the effort part, that which is practicing, planting seeds, planting seeds that help the mind, value awareness, recognize awareness, keep recognizing awareness, and when there's enough momentum, then samadhi arises. That's the quality of mind that can practice, because samadhi is that stability of awareness that sees things as they are. You know, we, we generally think about samadhi as feeling good. You know, there's so many stories about the the bliss or the wholeness, the fullness, the sense of being held that comes with samadhi. But the real uh, brilliance or power of samadhi is the contrast. You know, that unification, that gathering, that stability, that wholeness and fullness of samadhi Then, whatever has a different flavor really stands out in the mind. You know, our self centeredness has a different flavor. (laughs) So, any self centered activity really stands out. The defilements are easily seen for what they are nature, something that arises and ceases, something that's not onward leading, not helpful. So just uh, you know, here at the forest refuge, what what would it feel like? What would it look like to be interested in faith as a faculty of the mind, a strength of the mind that could get developed into a real power, something that builds a head of steam, you know that. That makes a difference in your life. And for a lot of these, we realize it's not so much like we don't do faith. If I said now to myself or to you, you know, manifest faith, it's not something we can just do. It's something we can recognize. And that's how it gets strengthened, is by recognizing it I love this line from Joseph Goldstein. Belief draws conclusions while faith flowers in openness. And I think this faith, this confidence, you know, in the, the sutta that's about the Buddha mapping out the natural process of awakening, it's dukkha that's the proximate cause for faith, which is kind of interesting. It's a shift in our understanding of our own experience of dukkha, heaviness, the unsatisfactoriness, the not being able to get it all together in our lives. And in moments, right, something shifts, and what a moment ago felt really unworkable, all of a sudden the experience of dukkha isn't what it used to be. It doesn't look or feel like it used to look and feel. Some people say this, uh, I think a couple of you said it in the interviews today, you know, some Something like realizing it was workable. We didn't have to throw it out of our heart or squash it. It's workable. Dukkha isn't what it appears to be. And that's kind of the birth of faith. And there are a lot of those moments where we're dealing with physical pain and a sit, let's say, and uh, and then some attitude shift happens and uh, what was not workable all of a sudden is workable or some quality in the mind, some memory or whatever it might be. And the initial response is a kind of, you know, that flinch, like, oh, <laughs> not acceptable. You know, and then wisdom stabilizes and checks it out. Can this be okay? It's here. It's now. It's like this. It feels like this. Be really nice not to have to run, (laughs) not to have to hide, not to have to fix. Is this workable? So with that faith that um, dukkha isn't what it appears to be, You know how the Buddha says that's the not understanding dukkha that is the cause of dukkha, dukkha being suffering from gross to subtle. In the Dhammapada, there's this passage, wisdom, or truly wisdom springs from meditation. Without meditation, wisdom wanes. Having known these two paths of progress and decline, let one conduct oneself so that wisdom may increase. So that's the seed of faith, that there's a way for me to be relating to what I, out of habit, find unworkable, not acceptable, too much, not okay. And the faith is there's a way for me to relate to this that maybe I'm not capable, probably not capable of right now, but there's confidence that there is a way that makes it workable makes it okay. And that's so empowering because it's it's the opposite of helplessness and it's really the opposite of idealism. Because idealism is sort of this sense like, yeah, I could be happy if only this all wasn't happening. <laughs> I wasn't me, you know, and I wasn't here. And so, all of the visions we have for happiness are kind, some version of not this, not me, and not this. And even when we start our practice, we often have an idealistic attitude. You know, we imagine ourselves being somebody else, the awakened mark, you know, the non diluted mark, or something like that. We generally don't imagine being ourselves and not having a problem with it when we imagine awakening. It's like really fully embodying this personality and the messy world I live in and the relationships that have already been set in motion in my life and the duties, responsibilities that I've already picked up with the body that's already experience the damage (laughs) that this body has experienced you know and then when we imagine awakening is that what you you know is that kind of the context of being free like being who you are and free generally we have some idealistic version some perfectionist picture of ourselves you know being free. But it's really, you know, free with conditions, not free from conditions. doesn't mean that there isn't radical transformation, but the, I think it's the reason the Buddha talks about the unconditioned is precisely because it transforms our relationship to the conditioned. That's the only thing that needs to be transformed. That's what's off, how we're all relating to the condition, to this body, to the thoughts and feelings of this mind, to the world around us. We relate with greed, hatred, and delusion. And it hurts. And it causes hurt. And we have faith that there's another way. And then we apply ourselves. So that which is practicing is virya, effort. And, you know, we've made so many mistakes with effort, you know, over-efforting and under-efforting, One uh, definition from Steve Armstrong I like is uh, the heart that doesn't collapse. And another way we might say that is uh, the heart, the mind that's uh, willing to be all in, willing to show up. You know, that non-collapsing, it's really arising out of the faith. However faintly, I understand it there 's something I can do. There are seeds that are helpful, and there are seeds that are unhelpful and I can plant either one and there will be consequences and that 's lawful and even if i don 't have a lot of clarity, we can we have the power to observe and part of the uh, what I mentioned earlier about the real root of the problem is the not understanding dukkha. So part of even though it may be faint, it may be weak, part of the movement in faith, there's some wisdom there. There's in the Buddhist practice, there's no faith without some wisdom. And it's wisdom about dukkha. And so and it has that flavor of there's something the mind isn't understanding about the experience of suffering. So you see, it makes sense that effort, this application of the mind, is going to be about planting seeds for present moment awareness. Because if the problem is the not seeing clearly, then the resolution is to stabilize the capacity to see clearly, to develop that mental muscle. So we often think about wise effort in terms of abandoning what's not helpful, you know, preventing ourselves from planting seeds that are not helpful, seeds that have already sprouted that aren't helpful. You know, how do we neutralize those unhelpful habits of mind that are already active in the mind? How do we abandon what's not helpful? How do we prevent the cultivation of what's not helpful? And how do we do that without reinforcing aversion or judgment or repression? Like, it's a joy to, um, like, to, w- to whatever degree we have some confidence, some faith, to, like, oh, I just didn't plant that seed, or oh, I just plucked that weed you know, I caught it early, I didn't take that off-ramp. And it, it, it has that flavor of liberation. I could have suffered, but i the mind didn't go there. And this happens all day long, this abandoning and preventing. And the other half of wise effort is um, developing and maintaining. And here, you know, we want to think of developing without impatience or greed and maintaining wholesome qualities without conceit, you know, without taking the wholesomeness personally. You know, we humans, we're actually pretty good at making effort. It's just, I always, I sort of joke, you know, when you fly, like from Minneapolis to Boston, And you look out the window. I mean, it's tragic, but humans have been busy. You can just see how much of the landscape has been transformed. And you go to cities. I mean, it is amazing, the infrastructure, the roads, the buildings, the plumbing. And I, again, there's with real costs, and I'm not... For or against, I'm just saying humans have the capacity for tremendous effort. If we think we're going to get something, that's the key. You know, we're willing to work hard if there's a sense of payback. And we work hard even when the payback is very minimal. <laughs> My uh, spouse um, has been learning some uh, Spanish on one of those apps, <laughs> they have all kinds of gimmicks. I think it's Duolingo or something like that. And uh, one is, which I think is just masterful. It's like if you—it's free until you like miss a day, and then you start getting charged. Or if you're—if you don't like get it all right, then you start getting charged. So she has to do it every day. You know, she has to apply herself. And then there's even sillier things like little bells and whistles, you know, little caricatures that um, show up on your screen, you know, when you get the right answer and little sounds and all these. But it's not like they have thought hard and deep about how to make people addicted to these things, you know. And it's like we jump through hoops for very little reason. So when we have the sense of what's possible, our work is to, like, this is why it's wise effort. We have to see, as that sutta that I mentioned last uh, Tuesday, we have to see with effort that it has the flavor of seclusion from entanglement. It doesn't have the flavor of entanglement. It has the flavor of the reduction of entanglement the flavor of dispassion, the flavor of cessation, resulting in letting go. That's what the Buddha says in that, Sutta I mentioned right at the beginning tonight, that I read last week, that the reason these five strings slope to nibbana, to unbinding, is because they're dependent, when they're developed independence on seclusion, dispassion, cessation resulting in letting go. So it's it's really useful for us to reflect, like with wise effort. This this will help us so much. Like I said, we've all embarrassed ourselves with the kind of effort, you know, just like getting on that horse and thinking we're riding into battle and once and for all we're gonna slay the demons of the mind, you know, and be triumphant or something like that, or giving up as if that helps, or any number of ways that our effort has been off. It's like, I don't mind making effort, I just don't want to be aware. It's just like like blind effort. I'm happy to do, just plod along. But effort actually has to have this very alive wisdom, where it has the effort is connected with the flavor of freedom, has the taste of release, of being onward leading. Even when we're doing really difficult work, just persevering with physical pain or persevering with emotional pain because it feels skillful. If it feels skillful, it should have that taste of liberation. That's how you know it's skillful. If it feels deadening, that doesn't sound skillful. That sounds deadening. And a lot of times we're just sort of plugging away, but we're not really planting seeds that are onward leading to Nibbana, to release. We're just going through the motions because we don't want to feel what it feels like to admit we don't, at this moment, know what we're doing. In that place, you know, we're often afraid of uncertainty and ambiguity and confusion but an honest acknowledgement oh yeah I don't know what I'm doing right now doesn't mean I won't know what I'm doing in the next moment because right in that moment of honestly acknowledging confusion it will have the taste of liberation it's onward leading when the mind is confused and there's clarity about the confusion That's wise effort. It's like, oh yeah, that feels really right. There's something right liberating about connecting with what's predominant. Confusion's predominant. Now the mind is clear. Confusion's like this. Confusion, it's like uh, one of my Burmese teachers, Saida Ujjanaka, he would say often, you know, on a cloudy or on a foggy day, Isn't it possible that the mind can be perfectly clear? It's foggy. Yeah. Even though I can't see, you know, 15 feet in front of me, there can be crystal clarity. It's like this now. There's another um, version of this kind of flavor of the path. So... The one I mentioned is from the sutta that I read last week. So it's dependent on seclusion, dispassion, cessation, resulting in letting go. Here, remember, seclusion means the mind or heart is secluded from entanglements. right? And dispassion is that sense, that flavor of um, just understanding, honestly, the limitations of sense experience not being negative about sense experience, but just understanding that as a human being, there's no effective way for me to grasp a sense experience in any way that will be satisfying. I can't own it. I can't grasp it. I can't make it mine in a meaningful way. Even really nice experiences. And that understanding is dispassion, because it changes how we relate. When you go to lunch, you're going to relate differently. You know, I notice it's because so, the habit is so deep, you know It's just the deep instinct to like, want to fill that bowl up. And uh, like somehow, the quality and quantity of the food that there's me, there's somebody who can grasp it, get something from it, other than a stomach that's too full, <laughs> you know, that, that it will somehow lead somewhere that will be meaningful in some kind of lasting sense. Well, we've had a lot of those meals. And it doesn't lead there. There, there is, you know, there's something really nice about eating healthy food and eating the right amount of healthy food and eating it in this context and the way that it's prepared and stuff. But that's pretty ephemeral, as nice as it is, beautiful as it is. It doesn't sort of, it isn't like treasure that we, we own, all those nice meals at the forest refuge. right? And any attempt to kind of make it something more than it is, it's stressful. So that's the dispassion. And cessation, you know, as this dispassion builds, cessation is just when the mind releases, gives up selfing, puts it down. It's like the, the cumulative understanding in that moment is such that any kind of avenue of selfing, self-centered grasping, doesn't make sense. So it ceases. Self-centered grasping ceases. And when the mind understands that, experiences cessation enough, then there's that that sort of free fall of letting go, which is really synonymous with liberation. But the other version of this that I like um, <clears throat> has to do with um, Mahapajapati Gotami. This is. You might recognize that name, uh, the Buddha's uh, the Buddha's mother's sister who raised him, because the Buddha's mother evidently died at childbirth, and he was raised by his aunt, and uh, she was became the first bhikkhuni, a fully ordained nun, and one of the awakened ones after some practice, and so this is when, after she had ordained as a nun, but hadn't. Uh, Fully awakened yet and she went to the buddha and she asked for some instructions i love this she said in brief <laughs> so i can go off by myself you know and remember what you said and uh and realize what you've realized you know have the awakening and so the, this is what the buddha gave the instructions the buddha gave in brief i'll just summarize it i won't read the sutta but he basically said um When you, for yourself, know that this practice leads to dispassion, not to passion, leads to being unfettered, not to being fettered, to shedding, not to accumulating, to modesty, not to self-aggrandizement, to contentment, not to discontentment, to seclusion, not to entanglement, to aroused persistence, not to laziness to being unburdensome, not to being burdensome, then you'll know know, for yourself that this is the Dhamma. This is the training. This is the teacher's instruction. So it's, it's a kind of a more intricate version of this dependence on seclusion, dispassion, cessation, resulting in letting go. But the the point isn't even memorizing these words because you, you could just use the word dispassion or something like dispassion because the practice has this integrity where the path, the way we practice, has the flavor of the fruit of awakening, of release, of freedom. And so in that flavor is unique, given that our mind uh, has been conditioned to think that sense experience is going to deliver real happiness if I just get the sense experiences that I want. So this is not that. This is in the other direction. It's the non-grasping, the non-attachment, the non-dependence Sense experience that has the flavor of release. So that means that when we cultivate faith and wise effort and awareness and samadhi and wisdom, it has to have that flavor, you know, of dispassion and being unfettered and shedding and modesty and contentment and seclusion, and persistence, and being unburdensome. And you'll see that like the wise effort. It's that it's really understanding the lawfulness that makes it strangely in times. You know, you'll feel it being effortless. Because there's enough wisdom that understands the value of relating in this way. And that value that's understood and felt is what leads the mind to relate in that way. So that it isn't a practitioner making effort as much as it is a natural system, a natural process. Because it's connected. I'm sure some of you, or maybe all of you, you know, we've had these experiences when there's some momentum in our practice and we really feel that uh it's almost like the the samadhi, the awareness, the wise effort. You know, that's I'm sure you remember this is uh one third of the Eightfold Path. Wise effort, wise awareness. Samadhi. And this is really bhavana, the training, the mental training. It's what we mean by meditation. What could be walking or standing or lying down or sitting, of course. But it's we're developing, we're cultivating this uh, natural process, this natural engine that leads to deepening. Of wisdom, which leads to more confidence, more faith. So I'm going to end tonight with um, mindfulness, and then uh, next Tuesday I'll come back and I'll talk about samadhi and wisdom. Um, As the last two of these five faculties, five strengths. That which is happening is sati, awareness. Because we don't do awareness, but we recognize it. Gil says, Awareness is that state of receptive attentiveness, not requiring self-conscious effort. I remember my first three-month retreat here down at the retreat center, of course, and two of my, two different teachers, two things they said were just so important. I think it was Joseph who said, uh, I mean, he said this more than once, you know. It was useful instruction, though. It's already here. You know, he pick up that, you know, somehow I'm trying to get something or get somewhere. And so I don't know how many times during that, retreat he would just say you know it's already here it's already here and then another teacher steve smith some of you may know of he's i think still teaching in the uh, in hawaii <clears throat> but anyway he said something that a lot of us have heard from our teachers which is that mindfulness doesn't care mindfulness doesn't care what's being known Awareness just knows. Right? It, it recognizes that this is being known. And it, it's fine recognizing whatever it is that's being known. So a lot of... The reason I'm saying this is we have an impulse, a lot of us, that we have to do the awareness. And I found it really helpful to remember that we're recognizing awareness. Awareness. And this is especially useful like when you've noticed you've been distracted and you're beginning again. Don't try to, you know, normally what we'll do is like focus on the anchor, whatever it is. So maybe we come back to the experience of the body. It's not like that's wrong, of course. But it it might be more useful like to find a way, like you could even drop in the question, is there awareness? Like a very honest, sincere question. Is there awareness? I just see what gets clear. Like, is there awareness? How do I know there's awareness? Oh, this is being known. And you know, that arising of this is being known will happen with less of a sense of somebody doing it, somebody needing to do it. Sayada Utejaniya says, it's not difficult to be aware. It's difficult to maintain it continuously. For this, you'll need wise effort, which is simply perseverance. It's like this not forgetting how valuable present moment awareness is. It's simple, and it's easy to to be dismissive because after a while we feel well, I know how to get it back. So we, we're not like, uh, but there's something, and this I'll pick up next week about samadhi. There's something, I think about it as an exponential function about samadhi. Like when you have continuity of present moment awareness, the power of that awareness develops exponentially. It doesn't take long with some continuity, for the mind to begin to see what it hasn't seen before, feel what it hasn't felt before. I'll just end with this um, passage from Sarah Darring. I don't know if people know, but she was uh, a teacher here at the Forest Refuge. She's passed away in 2018 and one of the real benefactors that made the forced refuge happen. She uh, lived for a number of years in the cabin that Caroline lives in now. She has a wonderful article on the seven spiritual faculties. Tonight I want to speak about the five qualities of heart and mind, which are known as the five spiritual powers. They've been called the five priceless jewels Because when they're well-developed, the mind resists domination by the dark forces of greed, hate, and delusion. When the mind is no longer bound by those energies, then understanding and love have no limits. These five powers are also called the controlling faculties. When they're strong and balanced, they control the mind and generate the power that leads to liberation. The five are faith, faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. When I first heard the list, I was puzzled. (coughs) I came from a Christian background. Faith seemed, of course, exactly right to be there. Wisdom, too, belonged on the list. But the others, effort, mindfulness, and concentration, sounded very clinical and psychological and dry. Where, I wondered, was love. I did not in any way understand then that the cultivation of these five factors leads directly to love. They're all necessary. They all work together and interweave very closely. Faith, which means trust and confidence in the Dhamma, inspires an outpouring of energy. When energy is strong, then effort To be alert and pay attention is easy. Mindfulness prospers and becomes more and more continuous. The stronger the continuity of mindfulness, the more focused and steady the mind. Concentration grows. As concentration deepens in the stillness of attentive mind, wisdom emerges. It's the wisdom of emptiness whose only expression is love. Let's just let go of the words for a moment. And we'll end our evening chanting the reflections on sharing blessings. <clears throat> on the back side of the precepts.